0: I just heard the story recently about how Thomas Edison, when he was a rather old man in his career, beyond what I would consider retirement age, lost most of his work, his laboratories, many of his facilities, to a massive fire. His son, who had been the governor of New Jersey at one point, tells the story in a book that he wrote. He says that on the night of December 9, 1914, Edison Industries was virtually destroyed by a massive inferno. Edison lost $2 million worth of equipment and untold, incalculable research and discoveries and things that may have been on the the cusp of working. You know, Edison's famous for reworking and reworking and reworking things until they worked out just right. Well, he lost $2 million worth of tangible things, but he only had $200,000 worth of fire insurance because the facility was concrete and considered to be fireproof at the time so his son charles heard of this he ran to the facility running frantically around trying to find his father praying he was not in the blaze and finally came upon him standing near the fire his face red in the glow of the flames his white hair wind blown and tinged with soot and he writes my heart ached for him he was 67 no longer a young man and everything was going up in flames. He spotted me. Charles, he shouted. Where's your mother? I don't know, Dad, I said. Find her. Bring her here. She will never see anything like this again as long as she lives. The next morning, walking about the charred embers of all his hopes and dreams, Thomas Edison said, There is great value in disaster. All our mistakes are burned up. Thank God we can start anew. That's a a hard lesson. That's the lesson that Israel learned. All their mistakes were burned up, along with all of their everything. When God allowed the people of Babylon, the armies of Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar to come in to burn the temple down, to destroy their capital city, to oust them from their land and drag them into captivity, and yet, now they have been allowed to return. These decades later, and they are given the opportunity to start again. Having seen the, the fruit of their disobedience and rebellion, and having repented and returned to God, now they are even beginning to rebuild that holy temple. And of course, the first temple was built by Solomon. Solomon had a very easy go of it. This is what he wrote in, in a letter to King Hiram. He wrote, You know that David, my father, could not build a house for the name of the Lord, his God, because of the warfare with which his enemies surrounded him, until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. But now the Lord, my God, has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor misfortune. That sounds nice. Have you ever taken on a project, and as you get going into it, you go, wow, there's no problems. It's just going perfectly smoothly. There's there's no misfortune. There's no screw ups. There's no there's no one working against me Well, that was the case for that first temple when solomon built it But that temple of course was destroyed it laid in rubble for 50 years and more And when god allowed them to return they had to build Not in the midst of peace on every side with no adversaries and no misfortune But absolutely surrounded by great opposition great difficulty And this continues to be how God builds his church in this age, in the face of opposition. He blesses us. He is there for us. He continues to bless his people, to give them endurance and perseverance. Read the book of Acts. Read the Gospels. The gates of hell will not prevail against God's people, but they will rage whenever the kingdom is built up. There will be adversaries in the work of God. And I admit that I am very skeptical of any Christian who tells me they have no enemies. They have no adversaries. They often mean it as kind of a, I'm fairly holy kind of statement. And yet, the prophets had enemies. Jesus had many enemies. The apostles had enemies. Preaching the gospel, standing up for biblical truth, will get you Enemies. Having none does not mean you are more Christ-like. It literally makes you less like Christ, at least in that category. Loving your enemies makes you more Christ-like. Knowing who they are, knowing what they they want for, for you, seeing that every time you stand up for the gospel, they want to knock you down and loving them all the same. And so if you have no enemies, I have to ask, Why not? Have you been outspoken about the gospel? Have you refused to compromise with this world and its values? Well, here in this passage, God's people had an opportunity, as they're starting again, to not have any enemies, at least for a while. They could have made friends instead of making enemies, but it would have meant spiritual compromise. In fact, they couldn't have really had no enemies. They could have had no human enemies for a time, But in choosing that, they would have been choosing enmity with God. They would have been choosing to go against what he had given them as a a command, a mandate. His very reason for their existing was for them to be holy unto him and to glorify his name. In the case of this returning remnant, their adversaries are already in the land. This is very much like the first conquest. Remember, I told you the exodus and conquest in the book of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and Joshua, very much the same sort of thing. This is like Exodus 2.0. And when they came out of Egypt, wandered in the wilderness and then went into the Holy Land, waiting for them were adversaries who already lived there and they had to contend with them. In the same way, when they come back here, they're returning from Babylon where they were in captivity for 70 years and they find that there are people living there. How rude. They didn't just leave the land unoccupied. The area where they have returned is officially a Persian province now. And and it's got a name. It's called Beyond the River. That capital B, capital R. Beyond the River, which is kind of a a cool, sounds like a cool resort to me. Uh, But they got there, and the administrative center, the capital of this province, was Samaria, where these Samaritans are. And they are not happy to have new neighbors. Although at first contact, it seems like maybe they are. Now, this is first contact with these people. We've had reference to how they were afraid of the people of the land. We had reference to how they had to act in spite of that fear. But we haven't heard about them talking to or interacting with them until now. And the flow of the narrative almost makes it seem like these other inhabitants heard the great cry at the end of chapter 3. And responded to it. Remember, they laid the foundation, they worshiped God, they looked at it, and everyone cried out. And some people were, the young people were crying for joy, so excited that a new temple was being built. And the, the older priests, many of whom had seen the old temple, and the heads of fathers' houses who had seen Solomon's temple, they wept and cried out in lament, and the sound mixed together, and it went afar off. I grew up about five blocks away from our high school and we would always hear when a football game was going you could tell when our team had scored now we live between a mile and a half and two miles away from msu stadium and when there's a football game we can hear when they score at least if it's like a significant or pivotal touchdown maybe they did hear maybe they said what are they doing these people and then they went and they looked and they said oh we're building a temple i see and this is what makes them think i've got an idea We go, we offer to help, and we insert ourselves into this whole process. They say to them, we worship this God just as you do. We would like to have a hand in building his temple. But there's two things going on here that get in the way of this working out. First off, they're lying. And this is the first tactic of the enemy, always, to lie. Jesus said when the devil lies, he is speaking his native tongue. He's a murderer from the beginning and a liar. They're called enemies, by the way. You notice that in in chapter 4, verse 1, before they've said or done anything. The enemies, the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, and they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and made this offer. They say, we're with you. These enemies present themselves first as friends and supporters, and yet that is a continual danger. When Paul is listing all of the things that that weigh on his mind, he talks about the danger he's in. Danger of the, the open sea, of being flogged, of fire, of persecution. And he lists in there danger from false brothers. Revelation 3, all the way to the very end of the Bible, this persists. We read in Revelation 3, 9, Jesus says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews and are not, but lie, Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Here we have more of the same. They say they are Jews, but are not, but lie. The lie is, we seek the Lord as you do. We worship the Lord as you do. There's some truth mixed in there, because this is the enemy's style. Ezra 4.2, we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Ezer king of Assyria, who brought us here. And they have. They have been making sacrifices to God. They have been worshiping Yahweh, the God of Israel, and they have been doing it for a while. The days of Ezer Hadon, that's going back 150 years. But... By claiming this lineage, they show themselves to not truly be Israelites at all. I'll give you the backstory here, because this is a bit of a deep cut. Before the southern kingdom of Judah was taken into exile by the Babylonians, the northern kingdom, you'll remember, was taken into exile and dispersed by the Assyrian Empire. And Assyria's standard practice, of course, was to mix people up take people out of their homeland and spread them all around, then grab people from all around and put them in the land they'd just conquered, mix them all up so that people would not have a sense of identity, of unity, and they'd be less likely to rise up. So they did this, and there were a series of exiles and influxes, the last of which was under this king, Esarhaddon. Haddon, and there's a cylinder in the British Museum containing the annals of Esarhaddon. Haddon detailing the forced deportation of israelites and bringing in of babylonians in their place so they would intermarry with the heathen and lose their national identity which is exactly what happened and while they were taught some form of worshiping the god of israel it was superstitious and it was carried out alongside worship of other pagan gods this is what we would call syncretism mixing together of true religion with false religion and coming up with some blend. 2 Kings 17 lays all this out in great detail. You can jot that down in the margin of your Bible. That's the background, and you could read it for some further uh, reading and extra credit when you get home if you want. This would have been the normal approach, by the way, in the ancient Near East, for them to keep on worshiping their gods, even when they're now worshiping the god of the land in which they dwell. When you relocate to a new land, Yes, you worship the new God of the place that you live, but you also worship your ancestral gods and your household gods. In 2 Kings 17, if you want to read it, you'll have a list in there of all the different people groups that make up this broader group and all the different gods that were worshipped. But this God, Yahweh, will not share his glory with anyone else. He won't fill out your pantheon and tie the whole thing together. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, he says, Again and again in the scriptures, the first commandment is based on that fact. You'll have no other gods before me. That doesn't mean no other gods in preference to me. It literally means no other gods in my face, in my field of vision. Get them out of here. I will be your God. I and only I will be your God, or I will not be your God at all. If you're not for him and only him, you're against him. This reminds us, of course, of the words of Christ as well if you are not for me, you are against me. Jesus also says in Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. The same principle applies here to those people of the land now offering their aid in building the temple. And don't just skim over how difficult and how tempting this would be. Remember, they have this daunting task before them, and they they don't know that they'll be able to carry it out. They have faith. But it's huge. They also have this sense of letdown, of disappointment, as they looked at the, the, the older guys anyway, and probably it, it spread, I'm sure it's contagious, as they looked at the foundation and said, this isn't, this isn't going to be like it was. It's not going to be as good as it was. It's going to be a, a cheap knockoff. And now we're thinking, well, if we could double our workforce or triple it or quadruple it, maybe we could carry it out. They say we can help. And the temptation would be, well, a little compromise will make this so, so much easier. And the faithful remnant is small and vulnerable here and surrounded by far more established peoples. If they were thinking pragmatically, which is all the rage right now in the church, they'd realize they need friends at this point, not enemies. And they know from their choice is between offending people or offending God. And so all of that falls away. In verse 3 of chapter 3, we read that despite their fear of the people around them, they began to build the altar. And here, despite their fear of the people before them, they say, no, thank you. We appreciate the offer, but actually we don't. Now, you and I might find this a little harsh, but we don't build temples today, and we don't know how this all works. In the ancient Near East, though, everyone was on the same page. If you help build it, If you fund it, if you work on it, you are buying into it. These Samaritans would have had a stake in the temple then and had a say in how the temple worship was carried out. Herod later, by the way, will take this temple and he will kind of renovate it, expand it, cover every surface in gold, and then say, well, now it's my temple and I have a say in how it runs. I, I'm going to raise and, and, and knock down and lift up people and positions. I'm going to use this as my own temple, as the center of my own Herod-centered religion. Well, we have that in Herod, but we have Cyrus' explicit disavowing of this privilege as a king. He says, God changed my heart. Your God, Yahweh, told me to send you back to rebuild so that you could worship him as he should be worshipped. I'm not going to do the old Assyrian thing of mixing everyone around until you no longer think of yourselves as Jews. I'm going to say, let's take that whole, you guys are God's chosen people, and send you back where you belong to worship God as he should be worshipped. I want to reinforce your identity. So the king is on the side of the Jews here, as they say, no, thank you. And again, to our modern ears, it sounds a little harsh to shut down such a friendly offer. These these neighbors who are here, not just with a pie and a welcome to the neighborhood, but with, we're going to help you with your project. We've got tools. We've got money. What can we do? But that leads us to the second problem here. The first one was that they are lying. The second one is that not only are these people of the land, as they're called in verse 4, lying, they are a threat to the holiness of this place. Not treating God and his house as holy is what got them exiled to begin with. And so this is going to be something they're very sensitive to at this point. Holiness is a concept that goes throughout the entire Old Testament and New Testament, but I don't think one person out of 10 who calls themselves a Christian could tell you what it actually means. I hope most of you could, but it's not something that was widely known. The word holiness means separateness absolutely very well done in the new testament the word saints hagioi just means holy ones you go okay holy ones but what does it mean to be holy ones holy means set-apartedness separateness separate from wickedness separate from sin separate from the idolatry and false religion and social injustice of the people all around them separate to the god of heaven and earth And these Samaritans living in the land, these adversaries were precisely the people who Israel had been set apart from, idol-worshiping polytheists who wanted to blend the worship of the true God with worship of idols. This never goes well. This is what was happening when Moses came down with the Ten Commandments. He found them worshiping an idol. It was a golden calf, and they were all calling it Yahweh. They say, oh, we're not worshiping a different God. We're, we're just kind of blending together the kind of idol worship we saw in Egypt with worship of our God. So we have, you know, a, a visible, tangible thing here. Didn't work out well for anyone. If you remember, he took the thing, broke it down into, into little bits of gold, put it in the water and made everyone drink from the water in order to punish them. That they claim to worship the true God then, as well as their other gods, it proves how dangerous they are. Mixing truth and lies together is the recipe of the enemy from the very beginning. Did God really say, did God really say if you eat of this fruit, you will die? You will not surely die. No, no, no. You will become like God, knowing good and evil. We've got a lie. We've got the truth nicely put together so that it goes down easier. A spoonful of sugar makes the lie go right down. The approach of Assyria and Babylon with conquered peoples was designed to prevent unity, prevent solidarity, but also to prevent any notion of separateness, holiness. And yet, somehow, they, against all odds, have remained separate, have remained a distinct people. This is amazing. This itself is proof of God's plan being carried out amongst mankind. Even in Egypt, even in Babylon... They remained, as the King James puts it, a peculiar people. I love that phrasing. I've been uh, working on a, a new edition of the Pilgrim's Progress that's, that's more readable, and so I've been keeping uh, ready at hand a, a 1617 dictionary to find the kind of old, archaic definition. I don't have it physically. It's on my computer. they will be impressed. Um, but, but just to find the, you know, the, the old, original definitions of some of these words, the way they're used in the 17th century. And of course, this is just six years after the King James Bible. And that word peculiar, according to that dictionary, means especially belonging to. Especially belonging to this God. Set apart to him. They're, they're his particular possession. Now I hear peculiar and I think odd, weird, eccentric. And yet, even in the newest edition of the Merriam-Webster dictionary, the first definition given is characteristic of only one person, group, or thing, distinctive. They are his distinctive people. And so they cannot say, sure, let's all team up and build this temple. How about your thing becomes our thing? Is the suggestion. And the, the temptation would be, ooh, converts-ish. We can grow our group now. But we'd have to compromise. And we'd no longer be distinctive, holy, set apart. This continues, of course, into the New Testament. It is not an Old Testament-only idea. 2 Corinthians 6 Paul, quoting the Old Testament, writes, God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Israel had struggled with this in the past, to put it lightly, and yet they'd learned their lesson." They had learned their lesson in exile, and they never fall into that trap again. They don't become perfect people, but I defy you to find idolatry chronologically after this point in the Bible amongst God's people. You'll say, well, they worship money. Yeah, I mean idolatry proper. Again, everyone sins, but they had been, it had been cemented in their mind that they are set apart, separate, holy. In fact, when Jesus comes... The the Pharisees and Sadducees have bought into this so hard, but they've missed the heart of it. And now they're thinking about being separate in terms of being kind of better than everyone else. And yet still, they would never have dreamed of compromising with pagan gods. The youth Sunday school class just got done going through Joshua, where they were supposed to go into the Holy Land on conquest and push out. All of the the peoples of the land, all of the Gentiles who are under God's judgment, but they failed to do so, and now they've just begun studying judges, where because they did not push the Canaanites out, they become like the Canaanites. And then they mix it all up with the Canaanites and said, we'll worship your gods, you worship our God, and that is what leads, of course, ultimately, to an exile like this. And just like during that first conquest, the people dwelling in the land pose a double danger then. Yes, there's threats of violence and outright attack to bring the building of the temple to a grinding halt, and yes, that is coming. But first and foremost is the temptation to unholy partnership to distract them and lead them astray. This is a continuation of what begins in Genesis 3 at the fall, and this continual two-pronged thing going on in the Old Testament of the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And one day the seed of the woman, Jesus, will stomp on the head of the serpent and defeat him. But until then, there is continual back and forth. There's continual enmity and there is continual temptation. In 2 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul speaks of false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Satan as an angel of light and his his servants as servants of light. And in the Old Testament... The standard Hebrew word for adversary or enemy opponent is Satan, Satan. It reminds us that all adversity to God's plan and God's truth is the work of the adversary, Satan. And his tactics are their tactics. In the wilderness, while tempting Jesus, Satan frames himself as, hey, I'm just here to help. Look, you could turn that into into bread, do that. Look, we can skip the cross. I'll help you out. All you got to do is bow down for a moment, worship me, no one will even know, and I'll give you all the kingdoms of this world. He is called a dragon in Revelation. What is a dragon but an amalgamation of a lion and a serpent? And this is his serpent move, his trademark move. Did God really say? Thank God that his people saw through this offer of help and responded with one unified voice, we cannot compromise. Watering down God's truth, his holy standard, is tantamount to joining the enemy armies and fighting against him. And so the people of Yahweh will build the temple, not the people of the land. They'd learned their lesson, as I said. The last thing they're going to do now, after all they had to give up and all they had to suffer because of their idolatry is to go have on building the actual house of God with those who don't truly seek him. Unless you feel like these people are, are unfeeling and unwilling to let anyone join them in worshiping God, unless you feel like they're a jealous people, that's not the case. In chapter six, there will be some who've proven that they truly do seek God, and they will be welcomed into the covenant community. In fact, they'll eat the Passover, all of them together and celebrate together. We read in Ezra 6, 21, The Passover was also eaten by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the people of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. Those who had separated themselves and become holy with them, they also took part. The reason that they give these Samaritans for why they can't allow this to happen is a little confusing to some people, though. You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Why bring him up? Is this just a political decision? Are they just worried about upsetting the king? I believe evoking Cyrus's name here may be a polite and easy way to kind of bow out. It reminds me a little bit of when I was in high school and you'd have teachers and stuff say, hey, listen, if someone offers you drugs or alcohol and there's peer pressure, just say, you know, my coach would kill me if you found out and I'd get kicked off the team. It's not worth it. I always thought that was lame. I was kind of defiant and jerky in high school. And I'd always say, oh, no, thanks. I don't want to wind up like you. But there's the ouch maybe that they have. But at the same time, I think it's also a flex. A reminder that the most powerful man in the world has tasked them particularly with this project particularly, and he's not going to be happy with anyone who gets in the way of completing it, so uh, back off. And then here comes the second tactic of the enemy, right on the heels of the first one. Lie, 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 and mislead, and when that doesn't work, when they can't infiltrate the Jews, they begin to oppose them openly. Kind of... If you can't join them, beat them, if you will. He goes from the serpent to the lion. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. And as soon as they're called out as adversaries, they begin to creatively hinder the work of God's people. And their main weapons are fear, discouragement, and open opposition. If the enemy can't win you over to idolatry, to compromise, he'll try to discourage you, to use Fear to push you down and trip you up and neutralize you. Fear is a God to so many people in our world today. And the 24-hour news cycle and over-the-top scare pieces in your inbox are its sacraments. When we're afraid, when we're discouraged, when we're broken down and crushed, we cannot serve God wholeheartedly, nor can we worship Him properly. In verse 4, we read, Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. Literally, that word discouraged in the Hebrew is weakened their hands. Then the people of the land weakened their hands. It's an idiom. It means to to discourage and and make them faint-hearted. And it answers to an idiom used in in verse 6 where it says those who aided them, the Hebrew there is literally strengthened their hands. We have those who will strengthen their hands as God stirs up their hearts and now those who will weaken their hands as the enemy stirs up their flesh. And the rest of this passage from that point on and the next one we're going to look at are kind of summary statements. Doing a brief flyover of all the different ways in which the enemies of God's people discouraged and tripped them up and tried to stop them. When he's done with the flyover, then he's going to go back and we'll take a closer look at all of it. But in verse 5, we read that they bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. All the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Who are these counselors they bribed? Probably counselors to the the king in Susa. Remember Susa? Not the guy who wrote all the marches, but I'm talking about the, the capital city. Remember when we were in the book of Esther, it all took place in the capital of Persia? Susa. Well, Daniel, who had the king's ear and was a high, perhaps highest advisor to that king, had just died this same year, leaving a bit of a power vacuum. Well, now I just have to throw a little money to some of the people who have the king's ear who don't care about Israel, and we can try and turn his mind, harden his heart, change things up so that this temple cannot be built. From the time of this event in 538 BC, it says until the days of Darius, the second year of Darius, 520 BC, that's nearly 20 years that this works to some degree and no real progress on the temple is made. After all the time they waited, after how quickly they built that altar and laid that foundation, now suddenly here comes opposition and they grind to a halt. This then brings us to the third tactic. First, lying to them. Second, intimidation and discouragement. Third, lying about them. And this is going to be their most successful tactic, as we will see. In verse 6, we actually jump ahead to the time of Esther. And again, this is just a flyover. It says In the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. You don't see it in your English translation but they wrote a sitna it's from the word satan not only does that mean adversary but accuser they wrote an accusation they wrote a satan writing (laughs) that's their tactic serpent meet lion and together they're lying and trying to shut down the work of god's people And remember, these are the guys who said, we want to help you build. They showed up with like their tools, all smiles at the beginning of the chapter. Now they're bribing people to keep the project from even getting started. They're sending letters to the, how annoying. This is like a whole province of people who want to talk to the manager of the empire because they don't like how their neighbors are acting. But it's the enemy's way and it is rather successful here for a time. If he can't lead you astray through temptation, he'll try to crush your spirit with fear and discouragement and spreading lies far and wide. I'm sure you've all experienced some of this. I certainly have. We have here at Judson. People have come into our midst saying, I worship the same Jesus as you. But when the the church is unwilling to compromise and parrot the world and ape the culture at every turn, just like these adversaries in Ezra 4, they begin to work against the church with essentially the same tactics now they didn't have google reviews in the ancient near east but it's the same philosophy as verse 6 here unfounded written accusations to try and counter the work of god's people stir up people of the land against them and this goes on much longer than these 18 years because even when they start building again it continues this will go on for 90 years throughout ezra and nehemiah beginning to end That's longer than they were even in exile that they are now being opposed. From here to the end of Nehemiah, it is continually a story of malice, harassment, and hostility from their neighbors in the land. Now, the question on your mind may be, why do I care? Right? It's a cool story, I think. But we know that temple, it's going to get built. And if you know the Bible, you know that temple, too, is going to be destroyed. In A.D. 70, it will be destroyed by the Romans. It no longer stands. But the point is that this all points to Jesus. All of it. The temple itself, Jesus fulfills. And everything, every aspect of it was pointing forward to him. The table of showbread. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Come to me. I am the true manna from heaven. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood will go on living forever. We think of the, the candelabra, the, the uh, beautiful menorah, uh, golden menorah in, in the holy place. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. City on a hill cannot be hidden. You're the light on the world. I am the light of the world. He fulfills that. We think of the altar of incense and the altar of sacrifice. Jesus fulfills that. The once for all sacrifice for our sins. The holy of holies itself, the presence of God Almighty in the midst of the people, Jesus fulfills that. God himself, Emmanuel, dwelling amongst them, but not now hidden behind walls and somewhere where only one guy can go and only once a year and only if he has the right amount of blood and even then they're worried he's going to fall over dead. No, now he walks amongst all of us, reaches out and touches us, heals us, saves us, forgives us, loves us. It's all pointing forward to Jesus. Satan opposed it then, and he opposes it now. In John 15, Jesus says, when the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And that hatred isn't always obvious. Just as the Samaritans said, oh yeah, we worship that God too. Totally. But we don't just worship him. He isn't enough for us. We have other gods. It's a tactic to watch out for. In the Screwtape Letters, there's this whole section where Screw Tape the wise old demon is writing to wormwood the novice young demon he tells him here's a sweet trick you can do paraphrasing c.s lewis he says try this christianity and dot 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 and he starts listing all these things make sure that their christianity is not mere christianity a little brand placement make sure that it's christianity and something else christianity and some big political thing christianity and Seeking after uh, gratification of the flesh. Christianity and, and he lists all these things. Jesus and is a trick the enemy will use. He used it here. Worked quite well. We worship that God. Absolutely. We made sacrifices to him over 150 years and more, as long as we've been in this land. But not just to him. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand, is perhaps my favorite hymn. Well, here, they're trying to keep one foot on the solid rock, and one foot on sinking sand. It doesn't work. What's the Jesus and in your life? Is Jesus enough for you? Or do you find yourself trying to have one foot on that solid rock and one foot on something else? Are you someone who says, I'm a believer, but I mean, I'm not like weird about it. I'm not so narrow like many Christians. Narrow is the road that leads to life if you find it. Broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many find it. I'm not a fanatic but you know I do follow him I believe in him many will say Lord Lord on that day and I will say depart from me I never knew you now once their lie is called out it's revealed that their interest in God's house is all about them not about him these Samaritans later will build their own temple on Mount Gerizim you remember that comes up as Jesus is talking to the woman at the well their own version of the faith is developed with the sharp edges grinded down. They say, if you won't let us in on this, we'll take our ball and we'll go home and we'll, we'll do something else. It's all about us. And those who are born again into the church can even fall into this trap. Have the same reaction when things don't go our way. Oh, okay, it's not going to work. I'm going to take my ball and go home. I've seen this in churches many times. We've got to be careful of this. This is the, the mindset of the enemies of God not of his people here in Ezra 4. If I don't get to sing the solo, I'm going to sing the backup part off key. You know who you are. I'm just kidding. No one here has done that to my knowledge. Is that our attitude though? Or I don't care who does it as long as God is glorified. As long as, as if I don't get my way and they, they do a ministry a different way than what I wanted, will I support it anyway? Will I pray for it anyway? Is it all about you or is it all about Him? Is, is what he's building now in you about your glory and your reputation or his? Jesus has come. He's fulfilled all these things. And now God is building a new temple, a spiritual temple. And the temptation to compromise here and there is greater than ever. I've already read these passages as we've been talking about the temple, but I shall read them again. 1 Peter 2, 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, To be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You know the passage, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, often misapplied to mean like, careful what you eat and make sure you exercise. It's not what it's about, although, yes, be careful what you eat and make sure you exercise. But when we read 1 Corinthians 6, 18-20, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. We have to be careful that the work God is doing in us is all about Him and lifting Him up and not about us, not about our ownership, not about our glory, not about all the things that were in the front of the mind of these Samaritans as they came and made this disingenuous offer to help. And finally, I think the question has to be put on the table, are you prepared to face the tactics of the adversary? Lies, threats, discouragement, fear. Are you prepared are you prepared to get people angry with you and maybe make some enemies that you're then going to have to love? Are you prepared? Because exclusivism in an age of religious pluralism is going to raise some hackles. John fourteen six, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's exclusivism. We see in Ezra 4 that no sooner is this foundation of this kind of work laid than opposition materializes. The great king had commanded them to build and had provided all they would need, but the enemy of the people leveraged the distance that he was a thousand miles away, and then they went and made all sorts of shady dealings with lesser local rulers. It's a perfect picture, I think, of today. The world says, oh yeah, really? You follow the the king, okay, well, I don't think he can help you right now, and here we are, all of us are doing well, many of you are suffering, and they will try to trip up Christians, tempt them away from work for the kingdom, and discourage them. And yet his throne is not far away. He is not far away from us, and we cannot allow ourselves to be discouraged. We give ourselves an easy out often. We start laying the foundation for a work, for a ministry, for something in our lives, and as soon as it gets difficult, we say, oh, God is closing that door. All right, it must be something. God didn't want me to do that. I was wrong. He's closing the door. Let's find some other open door where things are easy, and there's no adversaries. Why? They didn't do that in Ezra 4. Paul's definition, and I've I've thrown this at you before, and I probably will again, Paul's definition of a great open door doesn't look like that at all. 1 Corinthians 16, 8 and 9. I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. The presence of many adversaries almost seems to affirm for him that this is a wide open door for effective work rather than discouraging him. And people will hear the, the shout. Our joy and lament, afar off, like they did at the end of Ezra 3. Joy over our salvation, lament over our sins, and adversaries will come. We must be ready for them. The pragmatic, fear-based approach says a little compromise, making friends with the world, might not be a bad idea. After all, who needs enemies? And what does it matter if we give a little here and give a little there, and we're a little less separate and a little less holy in our ethic? We find ourselves daily in the same conundrum as they did on this day and Ezra 4 when the people of the land came and made that offer of joining forces to build this temple. Making an alliance. But they'd made alliances before. They'd made alliances with Syria and Assyria. They'd made alliances with Egypt even though Egypt had held them as slaves for hundreds of years. They'd made alliances and paid tribute to Babylon. It never worked out. It only got them exiled. And so on this day they say, I lift my eyes into the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Let me just close them with the words of Jesus to comfort and encourage you in the face of all this. In this world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your presence with us We thank you that while your throne is infinitely above us in many ways, your presence is imminently with us, and you are not far away. We can reach out and grasp a hold of you, and Lord, you will lift us up. You will hold us up. You will give us the strength to endure temptation. You will give us the strength when we are uh, targeted and and people try to discourage us and weaken our hands. And try and cripple us with fear, Lord, we know that we can lean on you and rest in you and look to you for strength. We pray, Lord, that we would be prepared to face tribulation in this world, but that we would take heart, for you have overcome it. We know that we will have enemies if we proclaim the gospel and stand up for biblical truth, but we know that you will give us the strength to love them, the mercy to offer them grace to welcome them with open arms, even to feed them and comfort them in their affliction as we read in the Gospels. Lord, this is the hard way, not the easy way. The narrow road, not the wide road, but it is the road that leads to life. We pray that you would help us to stay on it. In your holy name we pray. Amen.